Market, sponsored by the CME Group. Dateline, Chicago, Friday, October 5. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson, here to visit with you as we do every week, taking a look at markets from Wall Street to the feedlots and the wheat fields. And we start by looking at Wall Street because, again, quite a bit of report data coming out today that uh, had an impact on the marketplace. But the stock market dropped for a second straight day today, weighed down by another rise in Treasury yields in the wake of a solid jobs report that capped off a week of pretty strong data. The losses were led by heavyweight stocks in the technology and communication services sectors, including all members of the so-called FANG group, F-A-A-N-G, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Alphabet Google, online retailer Amazon. Part of the consumer discretionary service lost 1%. We'll look more at this uh, report a little bit later, but non-farm payrolls increased less than expected in September, but it's likely due to the effect of Hurricane Florence, though data for July and August was revised higher, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.7%. That's a level we haven't seen for 49 years. One analyst said, There's no question the job market in the United States is possibly at its best in a generation. There's no question or debate about that. The jobs report has become an inflation report. And the report did push longer-dated U.S. Treasury yields higher, with a 10-year note touching 3.248%. And that piled more pressure on U.S. stocks, which are trading near record high levels, raising concerns about valuation in the pricier names with a corporate earnings reporting session due in a few days. After the data, interest rate futures traders were still largely expecting a Fed rate hike in December, while the bond market uh, gauges on investors' inflation outlook rose. One other analyst said equities will have no choice because if they don't remain competitive with a risk-free rate of return, people will stop buying them anyway, and they will start going into bonds. So the Dow Industrial Average for the day fell 180 points, ending the day and the week at 26,447. The S&P 500 lost 16 points and ended the day at 2885, but the Nasdaq dropped 91 points. That's more than 1% ending the week at 77.88. And for the week, the S&P fell a point. The Dow slipped four hundredths of a percent, and the NASDAQ dropped 3.2%, the biggest weekly decline for the NASDAQ since March. And I should point out the S&P down uh, 1% for the day. But the stocks did close off session lows with the S&P finding support at its 50-day moving average at 2877 
and the NASDAQ at its 100-day moving average of 77.78. Apple fell 1.6% today, and the recently constituted communication services sector, which houses Netflix, Facebook, and Alphabet, dropped a little more than 1%. The only gainer among the 11 major S&P sectors were defensive utilities. But Tesla made it back into the news today after CEO Elon Musk stirred nerves about the settlement of his securities fraud lawsuit by mocking the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, his Tesla was the second biggest winner last quarter as we take a look at that situation. But uh, Tesla is one of those who got to jump into the fray and can't let well enough alone. And it uh, came back to bite him again today with that drop in the uh, stock of Tesla Motors. Now, I've had several emails saying, are markets closed on Columbus Day? You know, there was a time, and I remember well, Columbus Day was a holiday in the livestock and grain futures markets, as well as on Wall Street. But no longer. They did away with that holiday in that section of trade. So the Columbus Day holiday on Monday, federal government offices will be closed. Federal Reserve will be closed. There will be no bond markets trading. And uh, you better check your bank before you decide to stop by there because they could very well be closed as well. So what do we watch for in the week ahead? Well, as I said, we're getting back into the earnings report season. And coming up on Friday, it's big bank time. J.P. Morgan Chase & Company will report third quarter results on Friday. J.P. Morgan's ability to take market share across its businesses while holding down its cost of deposits drove the stock to new highs during the quarter. Separately, we'll get results from Citigroup for the third quarter. Executives expected to face questions about businesses at home and abroad. And uh, Wells Fargo and Company also scheduled to report third quarter earnings. There, investors will be looking closely at the bank's expense management as it tries to grow its profits under the Federal Reserve's asset cap on Friday. And PNC Financial Services Group also do to report third quarter results on the same day. So Friday will be a big bank day. Now, what about data next week? Monthly inflation expected to show signs of steadily picking up in September. After slowing in August, the Labor Department expected to report on Wednesday that its producer price index for final demand rose two-tenths of a percent last month. And uh, then on Thursday, data from the Labor Department will probably show the consumer price index increasing two-tenths of a percent in the month of September. 
Tuesday, uh, going to be a busy day for the uh, regional governors of the Federal Reserve. As a matter of fact, many of them are going to be on the speaking circuit. But getting back to earnings reports, Delta Airlines expected to report on Thursday, and they're looking for an increase in profit and revenue for the third quarter. However, Hurricane Florence is expected to temper some of the growth. Investors will look for updates on the company's financial forecast. And then on Tuesday, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation expected to release housing starts data for September for our neighbors to the north. We'll also be getting some Mexican inflation data for September on Tuesday of next week. And uh, a look at oil prices. Crude futures steadied today after climbing to four-year highs earlier this week. Brent crude futures for December delivery fell 42 cents to end the week at $84.16 a barrel. And uh, the U.S. crude uh, showed a weekly gain of about one and a third percent while Brent gained about 1.4% for the week. So that's what's happening and uh, what's going to happen as far as what we're looking at. But uh, getting back to uh, the Tesla situation for just a moment, uh, he really poked fun on Internet at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And uh, that's just one of several jabs he's taken recently that have come back to bite him. Well, we're going to talk agricultural commodities and what's happening there, because Max Armstrong sitting in the studio to visit with Mike Pearson. Mike is a longtime commenter and forecaster on what's happening in the grain and livestock market. And we'll get to that visit when we continue on the markets, sponsored by the CME Group. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. We're pleased to welcome into the studio this weekend, Mr. Mike Pearson, a no stranger, uh, not at all a stranger to many of our farmer friends, Ag News Daily, podcast on the internet. That's right. Podcast, website, you name it, Max. We're trying to be there every day. Just just like you guys are, we're all trying to support the American farmer and, well, the Canadian farmer as well. We're happy to, to look after our friends in the North. The North American scope. That's exactly right. Well, as we're in the midst of the harvest here, some haven't done much at all. As you look across the sweep of the Corn Belt and others have made a dramatic uh, dent in this harvest and are almost done. It's, it's not treated everybody equally yet, has it? No, it certainly hasn't, Max. And, you know, when you say in the midst of harvest, that employs, implies the middle of harvest. And, yeah, on average, we're in the middle of harvest. You and I were talking earlier. Central Illinois looks to be getting close to wrapping up through Ohio, it sounds like, making some really good progress. Growers in my part of the world in east central Iowa 
maybe they've got a field of corn out. Maybe they've made some headway into some beans. But we've been sitting for the better part of a week, and it looks like we're going to be sitting for a little while longer from Missouri, and there's not a whole lot left to combine in northern Missouri due to that drought, and uh, all the way up through Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, down in through western Kansas, they're talking four to six inches of rain and, and high winds, and it's just, it's a frustrating harvest for half yeah. the Corn Belt, but... I think it's been a pretty successful harvest for the growers that have been able to get in and get going if they didn't need to chop, and, and northern Missouri is the sad exception to that rule. Exactly. There's a lot of crop standing in the field that isn't standing very well, I hear, west of the Mississippi River. Have you heard any personal reports on that, and what have you seen? Boy, it's I've heard from a lot of different growers, a lot of different varieties. This time, it isn't linked to any particular seed variety or trait. It's just, from, and I'm no agronomist, Max, I've said that before, I've got a degree in history. You know, that's, that's the only thing I could graduate with. Um, but I've talked to a bunch of agronomists. They say it's just the growing conditions this year. That wet spring combined with some heat, boom, that corn, corn shot up like crazy. And that left some brittle stalks pretty well all across, all across the western part of the Corn Belt. And Boy, I tell you, we had some 50-mile-an-hour-plus winds here this last week, coupled with some more additional rain. It's going to be interesting, and not the good kind of interesting, when growers get those combines rocking and rolling, just to see how many ears actually are still attached to those stocks. But now think about it. How many years have we had very significant crop losses due to the inability to get the crop out of the field? Now, it's frustrating to the grower. It's maddening. If you're crawling across that field one way at one mile an hour, there's nothing fun about that at all. But in the whole scheme of things, when you look at the size of the crop, it's still going to be a 14.9 something something billion bushel crop, isn't it, that we harvest? I certainly think so. You know, it's not going to shrink any, or, or not going to shrink markedly here before uh, before the combines get rolling. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's more the frustration. You hit the nail on the head there, Max. It's grower frustration with, oh, what we could have had, and now we're giving up two, three bushels in the field per acre. It, you know, that stings a little bit when we need every, you know, $3.50 we can get our hands on Absolutely. out here in corn country. Um, now, all of that being said, it does seem like we've got some good things on the horizon, at least price related. You know, the first part is this weather. As big of a pain as it is for growers, this could be a relatively bullish factor here as we get through harvest. We were anticipating a huge crop, early plant, early harvest, quick maturity. We figured, or the elevators, I should say, had figured on having this crop in the bin pretty much already. And in a lot of places, they don't. They cleared out that old crop, made some new crop sales, and that new crop hasn't yet arrived. So my advice to growers is pay attention. Look outside your normal cash buyers for any uncontracted bushels. If you have basis left floating out there, keep an eye on it. This could be a year where we see some weird basis pops at different elevators based on those elevators that need to fill that contract right away. So the basis activity is the thing that may provide the best play here for for growers, just depending on, you know, what's happening with the local ethanol demand at a particular pocket or or what's needed down the river. Yep, if they've already railed out all of their old crop corn and they got a barge coming, you know, they're going to do what it takes to fill that barge. They're going to do what it takes to fill that boat sitting on, uh, on Lake Erie. And those are the things that... I'm not exactly sure that they're going to be huge market movers for growers, but like we've all said, in this year, pennies count. You know, your banker, your lender is going to notice if you were able to pick up an extra five, ten cents on a weird basis, 
move because you had your trucks ready and you were ready to rock and roll and get some of that old crop corn delivered if you still have some in the bin. And I've heard from some growers that they certainly do. That's going to work out in your favor. The flip side is there's not a whole lot going on futures-wise, while we look ahead to the end of the year. You know, there's just not a whole lot of movement out there. We're still in an upward trend line. Corn looks to be doing a little bit better than I think we'd anticipated right after that USDA report of 181 point whatever bushels per acre. Massive, massive national corn yield. Um, We haven't collapsed. Demand is still very strong. We're still bringing down carryout. We still have hogs on feed. We still have cattle on feed. We still have people driving vehicles that need ethanol. All of those things speak well to demand going forward. It just doesn't necessarily speak well to $4 plus demand going forward. What do you think about the USDA report coming up? The survey for which has been done here in recent days. We have that report looming on the horizon next Thursday. USDA's estimate as of the 1st of October Will either of those numbers or both climb in the October report, either corn or beans? Big crops get bigger, Max. That's exactly the the phrase I cited the other day talking with a buddy about it. Absolutely. Will they get bigger? Who knows? You know, if we could read the USDA's mind, I probably wouldn't have driven over here uh, in the middle of the night last night to be on TV. I'd be, you know, asleep in bed on an island somewhere if I could read the USDA's mind. But... I think the trend is definitely that we could see potential yield bumps in both. Now, after last month's huge jump, my inclination would be perhaps we'll see corn stay flat. And this is just a guess. You know, this is this is me at the blackjack table laying out my bets here, Max. I would say we're going to see corn probably stay flat, but I would say there is still room to move upwards in that bean number just because the folks I've heard who have been able to get out and run in some beans... They've been pretty darn good. <laughs> they have. Yes. Those, those reports coming in. Even guys that are usually a little bit shy with me and uh, reading directly off of the yield monitor have, haven't uh, haven't been shy in, in citing what they've seen No, this I, I've had a couple of, hey, Mike, uh, gosh, don't tell anybody, but we were 72 bushels on that field with an APH of, you know, 61 or an APH of 57. And holy cow, they're pretty darn pleased. And, you know, again, it all comes back to that August weather. How'd you do in August? But by and large, it certainly sounds like uh, bean genetics have caught up. That Finally. Yes. You know, you think about all of those years that we saw that yield just plateau there, and yep. they just couldn't move it. But boy... We wondered, we wondered, and here it is now. I, I think that's what it is. I don't know who the scientist was that finally cracked the code, but yeah, it definitely seems like we are seeing beans move like corn moved, which is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because, again, hey, even at even at a dollar under, money is still money. If we can bushel out of this, you know, bankers and lenders are going to appreciate that. The curse is despite the good trade news we've had here over the past two weeks with the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement getting signed, NAFTA 2.0, the U.S.-Canada-Mexico agreement. Yes. And uh, and then... That's U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Yeah, right. U.S.-MCA, right. U.S. U.S. first. That's right. Well, of course. Of course. U.S. Marine Corps. Canada last and Mexico in the middle. Yeah. Well, as it should be, Mexico was the first to sign on. You know, we can appreciate that. I I think President Trump's pretty loyal to those who sign on to his team um we still have that that battle with china and i i don't think that is going to be going anywhere anytime soon a lot of people are saying that i you know in the back of my mind i'm wondering if there is maybe some very 
Uh, very active negotiating taking place here, and uh, maybe we're not aware of it. Well, I, I would certainly – I hope that is the case, Max. It sounds it sounds like, at least from the official you know reports, that any – any type of negotiation that's taking place is happening at very low levels, and it's not necessarily going to get to President Xi or President Trump. However, I did hear that President Xi is expected to make a trip to the U.S. next year, probably towards the end of next year, and uh, actually sit down face-to-face with President Trump and hash out some stuff. North Korea, That's course, a long ways away, pal. That's a long ways away. And mm. so that's what has me a little nervous. Soybeans, mm-hmm. that basis that is so ugly as you look out of the Northwest producing areas unless something happens with chinese trade there's no way that's going to improve is there mike no i I don't think there is and 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 it's a gap of a buck or so oh a buck 50 i was talking to a a lender from uh oh gosh eastern part of north dakota here this last week and he said it was a buck 80 oh yeah and boy that smarts and you look at the at the dakotas as being an incredible example of american farmers adapting to price signals they were what six percent of the u.s soybean crop in south dakota in 2008 in 2018 they're going to be 16 percent north and south dakota in geez 10 years we've done that unfortunately they're in a situation where they grew so quick they had one major buyer and uh when that major buyer steps out it's a period of readjustment. Now, the good news is Taiwan did step in. They said they're going to purchase a heck of a lot more beans. Of course, they're not able to source from Brazil because that's all going to China. So they're going to come to the U.S. That's that, would, all. that would be railed out of the Pacific Northwest Absolutely. or shipped out of those ports. Absolutely. That's coming out of the PNW We're, with this Korea-U.S. agreement. We should expect to see some more bean purchases coming out of South Korea, again, coming out of that PNW area. And I'm still inclined to believe now that this uh, – USMCA agreement is signed. NAFTA is so much easier to say, Max. I wish they'd have kept it at NAFTA. But USMCA, now that that's been signed, I wonder if we won't see some Canadian purchases of North and South Dakota beans, Minnesota beans, and then exporting them out of British Columbia into China. I I don't know if that's going to happen, but boy, if I were an enterprising Canadian with a semi, that's what I'd be doing. Take it right up through the Mount McDonald Tunnel. Absolutely. (laughs) Right over to the coast. Hammer down, buddy. (laughs) Westbound and down. Let's get those beans out there, and that would help. Anything we can do to reduce that surplus of beans. Over the long haul, I think we're going to continue to see infrastructure get put in in North and South Dakota to cope with more bean acres. They're building more crushing facilities. But that's a – it's like President G coming next year. That's – it's a long time, a long way up, way off into the future before these things happen. It's great to have you in the studio, sir. Let's do it again before too long if you can find your way here. Always, Max. You just give me a shout and I'll be here. Take care, Mike. Thank you. Mike Pearson, Ag News Daily, joining us here. For more than 150 years, CME Group has been built with your confidence. Without it, we simply wouldn't be in business. Today, we continue to work on new and better ways to protect you and grow your confidence in the markets. After all, it's our vigilance that brings you the peace of mind you need today and in the future. CME Group. Advance with confidence. Taking a look at other agricultural activities and events uh, this past week, World Dairy Expo, of course, happened in Madison, Wisconsin, the 52nd edition of the World Dairy Expo. I spent the day there on Wednesday, and 
was a little bit surprised. With all of the doom and gloom talk in the dairy industry, the dairy farmers I talked to were concerned, yes, but they weren't jumping off rooftops or bridges. They were saying, several of them, we've gone through this before, maybe some of us not as bad, but uh, we'll find a way to come back. And generally speaking, they were pleased at the new agreement replacing the North American Free Trade Agreement because it may open up that Canada dairy market that has been uh, closed to American dairy producers and products. So I found optimism on that trade agreement and uh, talking to exhibitors, however, and there were a ton of them there, and there were visitors from around the world, China, Japan, South America, Mexico, they were all there. And uh, talking to exhibitors said, yeah, there was a lot of tire kicking, but not too many orders or purchases were being made. But they said one of the factors, of course, is how long will banks go with dairy farms that are in financial challenge because of the low milk prices. Interesting story out of California. Where else? California voters are right to think that they already weighed in on how big cages should be for egg-laying hens. Because back in 2008, voters ushered in Proposition 2, which sought to free egg-laying hens from tiny cages. Didn't outlaw the cages, but it did bar California farmers from keeping hens, as well as calves raised for veal and breeding pigs, in pens that were so small they virtually couldn't move. Since then, supermarket shelves have filled with cage-free eggs, and corporations like McDonald's, Costco, and Taco Bell have committed to using cage-free products along with many others. But I've talked to friends in California who said their egg prices rose dramatically. So now, a decade later, voters are being asked to revisit the issue with Proposition 12, the Farm Animal Confinement Initiative. The Humane Society of the United States, the issue's primary proponent, says the measure is needed to update California standards and also apply those standards to out-of-state farmers selling their products in California. But that comes back to a rule about setting up state restrictions on importing or exporting products. The earlier initiative simply stated the three types of animals must be able to turn around freely, stand up, and fully extend their limbs, but it didn't set any specifics further than that. So a yes vote for Proposition 12 would create new minimum size requirements for confinement pens for all three animals and require that all egg-laying hens be cage-free by 2022. It would also ban the sales from other states not meeting the California standards. The Humane Society calls the measure, quote, a common-sense reform that strengthens a decade-old animal cruelty law and gives farmers 
a phase in time to shift to more humane practices. And uh, then quoting Joseph Balk, who is vice president at the Humane Society of the United States, he said, most of the eggs sold in California come from birds confined in cages where it's hard for them to even move. They have to eat, sleep, defecate, and lay eggs in the same small space every day for their entire life. But specifically, the measure would require, starting in 2020, a calf confined for production to have at least 43 square feet of floor space to roam in, while each pig would have to be given 24 square feet of floor space starting in 2022. And according to findings of the state's nonpartisan legislative analyst's office, the measure would likely result in an increase in prices for eggs, pork, and veal, partly because farmers would have to remodel or build new housing for animals. Humane Society of the United States doesn't take any of that into consideration at all. They simply want it their way or the highway. So as we look ahead to next week, and again, I'll mention the fact that while Columbus Day is a holiday for banks, Federal Reserve, and that sort of thing, not for the stock market or for agricultural commodities. So let's take a look at where we will start the trade on Monday in the agricultural commodity trade. Livestock futures, the December lean hog contract will start at $57.55 this coming after gaining two twenty-five today. October cattle will start at $114 and the October feeder cattle will start at $157.85. And in the grain market, Well, we'll start a little higher. November soybeans were up 10 cents today, and December wheat up a nickel. Once again, too quickly, we have run out of time. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of Mark, uh, Max Armstrong and Mark and Mike Pearson, I'm Orion Samuelson saying thank you for joining us on The Markets, sponsored by the CME Group.